If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story an evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal movement, Mormonism, counterfeit Christianity, turn or burn, Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. There is a small poem that I carry with me whenever I speak to the issue of the Roman Catholic religion. Before I share this with you, I want to let you know that in presenting the Roman Catholic religion, I do not speak as an outsider per se. I was raised in a Roman Catholic household and my mother is yet involved in the Roman Catholic religion and all of my family on my father's side belong in some way uh, to the Roman Catholic religion. They're not practicing Roman Catholics but they certainly are claiming Roman Catholicism as their, their uh, hope for heaven. Uh, if you understand Roman Catholicism is a cradle-to-grave religion. You're baptized into the Romanist religion and you are extremely unctionized out of this world into purgatory and you are purgatorially cleansed into heaven ultimately. So when we deal with the Roman Catholic religion I'm not dealing with individuals I'm dealing with a system, a massive system of theology, a gospel that has at some points a similar presentation as the Christian gospel but even in saying that the language that is injected into Roman Catholic definitions of such things as faith and grace and justification and redemption and sanctification things like that their language 
meaning is altogether different from Christian language. So I always refer to the Roman Catholic religion, and I do call them Romanists, and I contrast them with Christians and Christianity. So I'll tell you that up front. It helps me to keep it clear in my mind, and if I keep it clear in my mind, I'll be able to make it more clear to you as time goes on. So, what I'd like to do this morning is to share this tiny little poem with you that perhaps sets the tone for the pitched battle we have in our nation today against the ecumenical movement and against evangelicals who are pushing toward reunification with Rome. We'll hear more about that this evening and also sets the tone, I think, for what we must be like when it comes to the truth. It's entitled, Let Truth Be Hard. I want to hear the truth and hear it hard. I want to bow beneath the iron hand of right. Let faults be jarred. To walk for once with softened heart and strengthened sight, let fall the guard and wake my mullish will unto its plight. Let truth be hard. But what is this I hear? Is all truth gone? You keep us babes. The mealy pap you feed makes truth a pawn. You dribble drooling words that flaunt and please. The right is wronged. And selfish hearts wax cold with speech of ease. Oh, let truth be strong. Let truth spread long. Let truth be hard. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we pray to let truth be hard, for the harder the truth, the more constant, the more durable it is, the more it withstands the brunt of the enemy. And Lord, we know that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, it is against spiritual forces in the heavenlies the myriads of satanic hordes that would seek to disrupt and destroy your gospel. And we pray, Lord, as we compare and contrast in this hour the Christian gospel that you have given to us, your very own gospel, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with the system known as Romanism, that you would enable us to have compassion for those who are trapped, lost in this system and that we might be more faithful in our witness to them. Lord, give us a heart for evangelization. Let us not be selfish with truth and let this truth be hard. 
May we protect it as it has protected us in our generation. We ask in Christ our Lord. Amen. On December 13th, 1545, Pope Paul III called to session what has come to be known as the greatest Roman Catholic Council in the history of the Roman Catholic religion. This, of course, is the Great Council of Trent. It met in three sessions. The first session defined justification, tradition, accepted the Latin Vulgate as the only acceptable translation, and defined the doctrine of ex opere operato, the seven sacraments of the Romish religion. Session two dealt with the Eucharist and confession to a priest. Session three produced the Tridentine Creed and the Roman Catholic Catechism of 1566. Now the Tridentine Creed was a document written by the Romish theologians at the Council of Trent and I brought a copy of it with me. It is the last two of 12 paragraphs that I draw your attention to to show you the seriousness of the Council of Trent. Every cardinal, every bishop, every priest, every person involved in religious instruction in the Roman Catholic religion had to sign the Tridentine Creed. It goes like this. I acknowledge the Holy Catholic Apostolic Roman Church as the mother and mistress of all churches, and I promise and swear, spondeo ac juro, true obedience to the Bishop of Rome as the successor of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and as the Vicar of Jesus Christ. I likewise undoubtingly receive and profess all other things delivered, defined, and declared by the sacred canons and ecumenical councils, and particularly by the Holy Council of Trent. I condemn, reject, and anathematize all things contrary thereto and all heresies which the Church has condemned, rejected, and anathematized. No man could serve the Roman Catholic religion without signing the Tridentine Creed. 100% total allegiance to the Council of Trent. There are two main points that came out of the Council of Trent. First is the statement of Roman Catholic dogma, finally codified for the world to see. Secondly is the statement of Roman Catholic anathemas against those who disagree. It's one thing to write down 
in written form for the world to see your dogmas, your confession, your doctrine, and it's another thing to write down the anathemas for those who would disagree. Both of them are given to us at the Council of Trent. In the main, there is a mountain of theological certainty coming out of the Council of Trent. Insofar as Catholic doctrine and dogma is concerned, the Council of Trent defines Rome and all subsequent councils, Vatican I and Vatican II, reaffirm Trent as well. Trent is the issue yet with us today. For an example, the sacraments. We read this from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary for salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or the desire for them, men obtain grace and justification through faith alone, let him be accursed. That's Trent. Vatican II. He, Christ, willed that the work of salvation which they, the apostles, preached should be set in train through the sacrifice and sacraments around which the entire liturgical life revolves. The New Catholic Catechism, 1994. The Church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the New Covenant are necessary for salvation. The fruit of the sacramental life is that the spirit of adoption makes the faithful partakers in the divine nature by uniting them in a living union with the only Son, the Savior. The most commonly asked question from me as I travel about is this. Has the Roman Catholic religion changed? Have they not come away from the Council of Trent? Is it the same as it was during the Protestant Reformation? Or has it truly changed? My answer is that the Roman Catholic religion has changed some things, but not for the better. They've changed for the worse. But their core of theology and their core of doctrine has not changed one iota. They cannot change, by definition, councils meeting in plenary session, that's full session, are irreformable. And by definition, when they proclaim doctrine, they are infallible. So a Roman Catholic plenary council proclaiming doctrine is infallible and irreformable. For Rome to change Trent would undo Rome. It would fall in a heap of dust and ashes. Trent still stands. Rome still stands. Their doctrine is the same. They've added some new. Now, to make this presentation a little bit more lively for you, I want to take you to a monastery in central New Hampshire. It's a cold, cold winter's day. And a phone call has been put through to my office. The phone call has come from Long Island, New York, where a Roman Catholic apologist has gotten wind that I had written a book entitled Romanism, 
the relentless Roman Catholic assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had gotten wind that I had been speaking out that the Roman Catholic religion is another gospel. And he said, I want to challenge you to a debate on this issue. The debate will be, what must I do to go to heaven? Well, I said, fine, let's have a debate. Where would you like it? He said, we'll have it in New Hampshire. I said, great, that's a sister state right next to me. It would be easy for me to get to. Where shall we have it? He said, we'll have it at the monastery. Oh. <laughs> okay. Let's just go to the monastery. And go we did. I, along with... Uh, several members of Reformed Bible Church, my home church. When we arrived at the monastery, we were met with a certain amount of discouragement and intimidation. We soon found out that we were going to be the only Christians there. The front row of seats was lined with Roman Catholic priests the entire left side of the auditorium were Roman Catholic brothers in training for the priesthood. And the back row was lined with Roman Catholic nuns, all of whom were praying the rosary. Out loud. <laughs> they had a table up here to my right and a table for my opponent to my left and some water, thankfully, on the table mouth was getting just a bit dry at that point. I was no more than five to six feet in front of a row of Roman Catholic priests. And uh, I prayed silently, Lord, help me to stand. I had the opening statement. And it's my opinion that when you're in these situations, there's no sense in trying to get on the good side of anybody. <laughs> so I stood up and I said, we deny that the Roman Catholic system of salvation is in any sense a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We affirm with the Apostle Paul that salvation is by grace through faith. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. I had 20 minutes to deny the entire Roman Catholic sacramental system as the first volley in the debate. So I did. When I sat down at the table, I looked up, and one of the Catholic priests leaned forward, and he went. So I leaned forward like this, and he said, you're a heretic. <laughs> that was confirmed by my opponent, who wasted no time jumping to the platform and said, we have a real good heretic here this morning, a lively one. I'm glad Mr. Zins came here, fool that he is. I want to share with you 
the defining moments of that debate and in so doing presenting to you why I know the Roman Catholic religion is not a Christian religion. Why I know that the Roman Catholic gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just wish that every Christian in the world could have been there that day to hear Rome as Rome really is. There's no question in my mind that had it been the 17th century in France or Germany or maybe even in England, I would have been hung in the barn. I went to Notre Dame University some years ago. They were having a conservative Catholic caucus and I said, I want to go listen to these folks and see what they're saying. So I sat there, the only Christian in the entire audience. And somebody came up to me and said, I don't think we've met you. And I said, oh, my name is Rob Zins. What do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm with Christians evangelizing Catholics. You're what? I said, yeah, and I brought some books I'd like to have you guys look at here. You're what? Word got around and uh, we went to lunch and we were eating in a cafeteria and I was having the best time witnessing to these Roman Catholics totally surrounded by them. They'd come from all over the nation to this conference. And a fellow came up to me and uh, he said, could I have a word with you? I said, yes. And he dropped to his knees and he said, I want to pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary for the salvation of your soul right now. I said, I will let you do that useless exercise if you take one of my books. He said, I'll not touch a heretic's book. Should I put my hands on it, I would be befouled and polluted. And with that, he and all the rest of the people sitting at the table began praying out loud to Mary that my soul would be saved. Now this is Roman Catholicism in its reality. We don't see Rome in America like the rest of the world sees Rome. Roman Catholicism in the United States of America is a hybrid, it's a cafeteria style, it's pick and choose, but it is now beginning to change. There are a number of Roman Catholic apologetic organizations that are very bold in their presentation of their doctrines and their religion. They're going door to door. There's an organization called Catholic Answers. They send out thousands and thousands of booklets and tracts all over the United States. You'll, you'll hear from them. They have caught the attention and caught the ear of a number of key evangelicals in our nation. And I'll talk more about them this evening. So, back now to the debate. To understand the Roman Catholic religion, you have to understand that it is based around the notion that God has given to us a system of salvation. The system of salvation is left for man to do. Man does it under the auspices and under the authority of Romish prelates, priests, bishops, cardinals, and ultimately the bishop at Rome, the pope himself.
They are absolutely convinced that God has left us with a system to go through in order to arrive at a heavenly goal. It is foreign to the mind of a Roman Catholic that one can be assured of salvation or that one can have a personal relationship to, with Jesus Christ to the extent that there is no fear of a final judgment that will cast that person either into hell or into the, to the cleansing fires of purgatory. Roman Catholics do not believe that the Bible alone is their only source of authority. They don't trust the Bible nor their interpretation of the Bible. All is left to the system. All is left to the priests. All is left to what we call the implicit trust of the Roman Catholic in those who handle the religious end of things. When I first began witnessing to Roman Catholics, it was a great sense of discouragement because all of them would say, I'll have to get back with you. I, I need to go talk to my priest. And I'd say, well, you just need your Bible. It says this right here in the Bible. No, you don't understand. My priest knows the Bible. He'll tell me. And if he doesn't know, then he'll call the archbishop and, and the bishop. And so the, the appeal is always to the system. And, and this is why this, this implicit trust in the system must be crushed. Because... It's a very, very comfortable religion to be in. Cradle to grave, baptized as a baby, and uh, final anointing on your deathbed. And it's done so by those who know best. Priests know best. I, I've witnessed to, to elderly who tell me, my priest knows best. The problem is the priest doesn't know the gospel. The problem is the priest doesn't know best. Problem is, there's, there's no salvation in the system. But yet they're convinced the priest knows best. So there's a constant appeal back to the priest. But at the heart of the system, of course, is a sacramental system. And through faithful adherence to the sacramental system, one can gain access either to purgatory or to heaven, ultimately. And the sacramental system begins with Roman baptism. Without denying baptism in its proper biblical form and meaning, we have to deny the sacrament of baptism in the Roman Catholic religion. We deny that the Spirit of God is called down by the waters of baptism. We affirm that the Spirit is free and comes and goes as it will according to the providence of God. For we read in John 3.8, the wind blows where it will. And you hear the sound, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So it is that everyone who is born of the Spirit. One must be born from above, not through the water. It's through faith, not through the water. Water baptism signifies nothing without faith present in the recipient. It has no power or value as a bare procedure. It never forgives sins and it never starts, as Romanism asserts, a process of justification. Baptism in the New Testament signifies nothing without faith being present in the recipient. 
It does not signify any other reality than faith existing in the recipient. Water baptism is subsequent to the baptism in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. It does not bring about in, with, by the Spirit. It's subsequent to it. The Roman Catholic religion's first fundamental foundation is baptismal regeneration. I don't know how well versed you are here on this issue, but let me tell you, for my money, next to justification, this is the biggest theological issue in the universe. I spent some time in Dallas, Texas, and in my time there I had an opportunity to do some debating against what is known as the Church of Christ. I debated four nights a minister of the Church of Christ and their key teaching staunchly defended by them and they don't give an inch on this is that baptism is necessary for salvation they believe in a baptismal regeneration that's one complication is it not they believe in believers' baptismal regeneration, which is an oxymoron, but nevertheless, that's what they believe in. Now, I've got a whole army of Episcopalians, Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, who are baptizing their babies. But they don't believe in baptismal regeneration, so to speak, Although if you read their creeds, they're either on the razor's edge or they've gone over the top of this thing. And now comes Rome. They believe in baptizing infants for regeneration. What's a kid to do with this baptism issue? Do you realize in my second to last debate against Roman Catholic apologists that he stood up and said, Mr. Zins, I know that you do not believe in infant baptism. Could I quote for you John Calvin? Could I quote for you Martin Luther? Could I quote for you your great reformers, all who stood in the tradition of the Roman Catholic religion and were solidly behind infant baptism? And yet you're going to sit here this evening and call yourself a Protestant and call yourself a Christian and say that you have all the answers from your Bible. You don't even believe what your own reformers taught. That's a little bit embarrassing. And I have to stand up and say something like, well, John Calvin may have taught paedo-baptism, which he did, but John Calvin did not teach baptismal regeneration. Sort of didn't. Baptism is a huge issue because it goes to the point of how one gets the Holy Spirit. It goes to the point of how one is regenerate. It goes to the point of whether or not God has left us with a system and by performing an outward act, a ritual, we can call down the Spirit of God.
So it's not just confusion among Roman Catholics on this issue. The confusion is spread throughout all of confessing Christendom on this issue of baptism. When we debate Roman Catholics, they fly to John 3. You must be born of the water and the spirit. And they don't leave it. And the trouble is that in the conversation that our Lord had with Nicodemus at that juncture, he is chiding Nicodemus as being a teacher of the nation of Israel and not understanding that one must be born of the water and the spirit. Now how could this refer to Christian baptism when Christian baptism had not yet been initiated by our Lord? He had not yet died. He had not been raised from the dead and gone to heaven. Christian baptism is entirely unknown. So I doubt that our Lord is chiding Nicodemus for not paying careful enough attention to Christian baptism in this conversation in John chapter 3. But the disturbing element remains. What does the water mean? If you must be born of the water and the spirit, what does the water mean? And it's a difficult issue. What does the water mean? Well, there are a number of good possibilities as to what water means in John 3. It may, for instance, mean the water at birth. Take a scientific approach to the text, and our Lord may have been saying you must be born of the water. That is physically born, and of the Spirit. That is born again of the Spirit. Some people take the water there as the washing of the Word, citing Ephesians 5. You must be born of the Word and the Spirit. The Word is preached, and the Spirit takes the Word and drives it into your heart. Some people think that our Lord is referring to Nicodemus's reliance upon Old Testament ceremonial cleansings that many of the nation of Israel relied upon for their access to God. And that is only a ceremonial cleansing. It's a cleansing, it's a purification, but you must be born of the Spirit as well. You must be cleansed. Some people take it as exegetical, a fancy term wherein water and spirit are exactly the same. You must be born of the water that is the spirit because oftentimes in scripture the spirit is mentioned as a, as a form or a type in the word water. Cleansing, washing, Holy Spirit coming together. So there are a number of good explanations for what the water means in John 3 but it doesn't mean baptism. And the Roman Catholic religion is convinced it does. And as a result, every Roman Catholic mom and dad must take that tiny little infant to that priest and have that water put over the forehead with the priest's incantations over that baby. And they are taught that when that is done, that child is born again process of justification has begun and all the original sin of Adam is washed away. Could I just further complicate your minds that are already overcrowded by extending forth to you this issue as well? All Pelagians believe that man is born tabula rasa, clean slate. There is nothing inherent in man, either by guilt or prevarication, that would condemn him before God. He is innocent, an innocent baby. Some Arminians and semi-Pelagians take the same 
concept by saying that Christ's death on the cross destroyed the original guilt and sin of Adam as it pertains to Adam's posterity, the human race. How ironic that Pelagians, some of Pelagians, some Arminians put babies in the exact same position as Rome does, only without baptism. Rome at least believes that there is a residue, a remnant of sin and guilt in the baby as a result of that baby being born into a race that is condemned and polluted with Adam's sin. But they wash it away in the waters of baptism. Now comes along the semi-Pelagian or the Arminian that says, no need to do that. Why? It's already washed away in the blood of Christ at the cross for Jesus Christ died so that every person born would be born innocent with a clean slate. What's a kid to do on these matters? You see, theological constructs coming out of the whole issue of baptism and the status of a baby born is critical in understanding not only the Roman Catholic religion, but also your very own faith and your understanding of theology. But suffice to say here this morning that the first pillar of the Roman Catholic religion is baptismal regeneration in the waters administered by a priest for the washing away of Adam's original sin contracted by birth as being a part of the human race. We deny that in its entirety as the teaching of the New Testament. A man is not born again by baptism. Secondly, the Roman Catholic religion moves on with the child up until a point where the child is asked to make an open profession of faith, which is called confirmation. According to Pope Innocent IV at the Council of Lyons, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given in the anointing with chrism at confirmation. We deny confirmation. We deny a bishop of Rome can call down the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands or anointing with olive oil and balsam, which is this mixture that they put on the child's forehead. The Spirit is given freely and sovereignly to all those whom God calls unto his Son. It has nothing to do with Catholic bishops. We further deny that Acts 8.17 is proof of the Roman Catholic dogma of confirmation. In Acts 8.17, Peter and John go down and they lay their hands on those who had believed but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes upon them. Can I remind you, this is not a Roman Catholic bishop anointing somebody with the chrism of olive oil and balsam. Could I further remind you that nowhere else ever in the entire New Testament is this given as a model for the receptivity of the Holy Spirit. None whatsoever. I have some Pentecostal friends I can't get them out of Acts. They probably feel the same to me. They can't get me out of Romans. But if I'm going to speak Christian theology, I'm going to be in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get my Christian theology out of the book of Acts. I'll get my historical incidences, and they are many, and they are interesting, and they are provocative, and they are for our learning and our history. But I will not take a theology out of the book of Acts. 
For there are things occurring in the book of Acts that cannot be explained, and they are not normative. And one of the things that cannot be explained and is not normative is what is occurring in the early stages of the church. When our Lord sends out his commissioned apostles to perform the task of preaching the Gospels, first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, there are some strange things going on, some bewildering things. But once it all settles down and the body of Christ is established, then we are informed through the rest of Scripture the normative way in which the Spirit of God comes to all those who are in Christ. The Roman Catholics, in trying to justify the sacrament of confirmation, flee to Acts 8.17, and they see hands laid, and they see spirit falling, and that's good enough for them. And I wish I could give you more scripture that they would appeal to for this, but there is not one other piece of scripture ever appealed to other than Acts 8.17 for the entire sacrament of confirmation by a bishop of Rome. And of course, we deny this as the teaching of the New Testament. One of the pillars of the Roman Catholic religion is the Eucharist. And we deny that the Bible teaches that a priest is empowered to effect a change from bread and wine to the actual body, blood, soul of Jesus Christ, which is called transubstantiation. We also deny the Romish contention that participation in Mass forgives sins or that the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice. The Roman Catholic religion is built not only around the notion of a sacramental system whereby those who are faithfully involved in it receive the grace of God infused for ethical improvement, but it's also committed to the notion that we can get grace through participation in the Mass. And it's at the Mass where the priest lifts up the wafer and declares that this is actually and truly the body of Jesus Christ and offers it as an offering in an unbloody fashion on the Romanist altar wherein a transformation takes place called transubstantiation and it becomes the actual body of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the soul of Jesus Christ. And by taking this in, ingesting this, one receives grace. And this grace is meant to fill you up and protect you against the commission of sins after having received the grace in this Roman Catholic Mass. Roman Catholics appeal to John chapter 6 to teach the actual eating of the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical way, shape, or manner. That is their absolute critical passage on this. John chapter 6 constantly and forever quoting that our Lord said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they say the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood can only be accomplished through a priest transubstantiating wine and bread into body and blood. They make a leap from John 6 to the Lord's table, the Last Supper, where the Lord said, this is my body and this is my blood. And they say, see, here it is. It is the Roman Catholic religion's teaching that our Lord actually transubstantiated himself into the bread and the wine that he gave to his disciples at the last table. 
And this teaching continues on and unabated in the Roman Catholic religion. Not only are they said to receive grace through participation of the eating of Jesus Christ in this fashion, but this sacrifice is propitiatory. That is, it forgives the sins of those who participate in it. Is it any wonder while Roman Catholics go to Mass? When I was in the Roman Catholic religion, I went to Mass faithfully every single Sunday for the forgiveness of sins previously committed in the intaking of Jesus Christ into my body and also offering up to him an acceptable sacrifice in the representation of Calvary at that moment. Now, with this kind of leverage over people as the only way to satisfy God in the only way to be certain that our Heavenly Father is pleased with you, wouldn't you go to Mass as well? Wouldn't you try to get there? Wouldn't you trust the priest to take care of this sin problem through this way? Remember what I said, implicit trust in the priest. They know what's best. They study theology. They go to seminary. They know Latin. They've got it. And so millions and millions of Roman Catholics every single Sunday morning file into Mass, take the Lord in this manner, and file out the side door. And it has to be broken. And the only way you can break it is to talk to them about what they believe in and hope that the Lord will give them eyes to see. But we are in the sacramental system. We are in the Eucharist. We are in confirmation. We are in baptismal regeneration when we talk to Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic religion relies heavily upon the concept of penance as well. And we deny wholeheartedly the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance. We deny that the Lord Jesus Christ gave special powers of forgiveness to a priestly class to confer forgiveness on the basis of penance or anything else. We also deny the need for a confessional box. If the Roman Catholic religion is not bizarre enough with baptismal regeneration, confirmation, the Eucharist in their Mass, they go absolutely beyond any doubt as to being outside of Christianity with their sacrament of penance. They are told that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to make it possible for people to go to heaven, but in his benevolence, he has made them participants in the process. Therefore, the blood of Jesus Christ did not really obtain an eternal redemption. It obtained the possibility of one if you participate in the system. And part of participation is doing penance. And penance is nothing more than a person participating in a sacrificial atonement for his own sins or her own sins. Penance in the Roman Catholic religion consists in either saying by rote memory a series of prayers on the rosary or involves doing good works, paying money, working in the church, buying masses. There are any number of things that a priest can prescribe as penance for sins committed. And this is where heresy meets heresy. What they are saying here is that you, 
have to participate in the payment of your sins. And the priests are the ones who dole out the punishment. When I was in London last spring, I was called to participate in a television program called Religious Crossfire. And they called me up, and the issue was whether or not the Roman Catholic religion had the right to canonize Padre Pio, who was a mysterious Roman Catholic priest in northern Italy during the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And there's a big push for the Roman Catholic religion to canonize this man. And the canonization process means that Padre Pio would be elevated directly to heaven and that his works on earth would be distributed into a treasury of merit and that treasury of merit would be applied to the faithful here on earth. Part of the Roman Catholic religion is a treasury of merit whereby the good works of those who precede us are distributed from heaven onto the folks who need it on earth. Super saints have more grace than they need, so they give it up and put it in a box. It, you know, people say to me, why are you so down on Roman Catholic religion? I said, have you ever read about it? It is the most bizarre state of affairs you've ever wanted to dream of. It makes the Mormons look pretty decent in this whole thing. And you know how far adrift they are from any hope of being included in Christianity. Well, at any rate, I went to London and I'm sitting at this table with Friar Tuck. I had to call him Friar Tuck. A jolly fellow with a big brown robe and a sash around the middle and kind of a balding head. And I said, Friar Tuck. I mean, it just came right out of my childhood because I used to watch Robin Hood. He wasn't named Friar Tuck, but I called him Friar Tuck. And then there was Father Youngblood and then there was the religious editor of a London newspaper and uh, the moderator. And uh, here we go. Why should Padre Pio, this father in the Roman Catholic religion, be canonized? Well, Friar Tuck gave his reasons. And, and the biggest reason was that Padre Pio used to get up early in the morning and crawl on the altar and try to bleed for his people. He tried to participate in an act of propitiation that was in concert with the Lord's death. And according to Roman Catholic history, Padre Pio actually had the stigmata. He would lie on the altar and blood would come flowing out of his hands and blood would come flowing out of his chest. And uh, somehow they validated this by bringing people to, to make sure that this really was blood and it really was flowing out of his. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of supernatural things occurring in the Roman Catholic religion, but they are not of God. There are two sides to this supernatural business. But at any rate, he was going to be canonized because he suffered and redeemed his people and suffered redemption for them and taught them how they could redeem themselves through their suffering. And it all goes to this point of penance that they actually believe that they can add something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And they appeal to a number of passages for this. One is Acts 2.38. It's a mistranslation of the Latin Vulgate in which Peter says, repent. And the Latin Vulgate 
reads, do penance. That is yet, to their embarrassment, in the Latin Vulgate and all translations up to our modern times. In fact, the Dewey Rames version of the Roman Catholic Bible has do penance. Every time the word metanoia is used in the New Testament, they translate it as do penance. Now, the New Catholic American Bible has repent. They've corrected it. That goes to our favor. How can an irreformable council at Trent affirm the Latin Vulgate and then change the translation? But that's another debate. This debate is the idea of do penance. And it's drilled into them, do penance, do penance, do penance. And they cite a little obscure passage in Colossians where the Apostle Paul says that we must do our share to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. And they take that passage as a redemptive passage. In fact, the priest, when he quoted that to me, he says, haven't you read Colossians? It says we must do our share to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's redemption. I said the passage doesn't say that. He said it most certainly does. I said it does not say that. It does not say that we do our share to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's redemption. The word redemption is not there. The word suffering is. You put in redemption because your mindset is that you believe that you can share in the redemption of Christ by doing penance. Look it up. It's suffering. And it does not mean sharing redemption. It means something entirely different. So the Roman Catholic religion centers in upon the sacrament of penance as well as the Eucharist, the Mass, as well as baptismal regeneration and confirmation. And if we move forward into the Roman Catholic religion, we find at the time of death, which is administered by a priest for the purposes of praying over the one close to death's door in order to have all sins not formally confessed removed. But even the Roman Catholic priest will tell you they can't be certain that they've covered them all and that extreme unction will take care of each and every one. Mortal sins, yes. Venial sins, no. So the hope of the Roman Catholic is that he will be tossed off into eternity by the way, their appeal to James 5, 14 through 16 for the sacrament of extreme unction needs to be read by you very carefully. It is their contention that the calling of the elders for the anointing of, el for the anointing of oil is for forgiveness of sins. But if you read the passage carefully, the calling for the elders for the anointing of the oil onto the sick person is with a view that that sick person would recover. It is not with a view that that person is going to die and the anointing of the oil will forgive the sins that he has not confessed. There's a slight twist by Roman Catholic apologists in that passage, and they use it, and that is the one and only passage they appeal to for the entire sacrament of extreme unction. Well, let's talk about purgatory briefly in the time we have left. We deny the existence of purgatory, of course, it is alleged that purgatory is a place where sins are purified by fire. Now, the Roman Catholic religion has changed their mind on purgatory by changing the language. And this is called the elastic clause of Romish doctrine. According to their own dogmas, doctrine can be clarified and it can be explained and it can be exemplified in different language as God grants succeeding generations more wisdom on the matter. Well, American Catholics don't take kindly to the idea of purgatory. 
And American Catholics spend a lot of money on Roman Catholicism. In fact, it is the American Roman Catholic religion that pretty much supports all of Rome's enterprise by far as far as financial contributions are concerned, the money is here. So American Catholics have been rebelling at this notion of purgatory as a place of terrible suffering, even though the Council of Trent affirms it, even though Vatican I affirms it, even though Vatican II affirms it, what to do, what to do, what to do. Well, here's what they've done. They have now made purgatory a delightful place. It's a good place to be. Here's the rationale. Remember when you were a little boy or a little girl and you did something very, very bad, and you knew that you were guilty, and you knew that eventually you would get caught, and you knew that you had to be spanked, but you couldn't wait to get caught. You worried about it so much, and finally, when you could bear it no longer, you ran into Mommy and Daddy, and you said, Mommy and Daddy, I did it, I did it, I did it. What did you do? Oh, I took the keys to the car and I flushed it down the toilet. I thought that'd be such a good idea. You did what? Well, you're going to get a spanking for that. I told you a thousand times never to touch those keys. And, and so maybe the child takes the punishment. But in doing so, the child loves it. He loves it because he knows that this is the right thing. And so it becomes a joyful experience. I don't know what kind of kids these Roman Catholics are raising, but my kids never once looked at me in the middle of a spanking and said, oh, bring it on. I love it so much. Could you just hit me a little bit harder? I love suffering like this because it really shows me that you love me. You know what my two boys said to me after I spanked them? You hate me, don't you, Daddy? But Rome has changed this whole concept. It's still there. You go to purgatory, you still are in there. You still are suffering. But in a magnificent decree by one of their popes, they said that God is so gracious to us that he allows us to go through the pain and suffering of purgatory so that we can feel in some sense closer to the suffering of Jesus and in doing so, draw closer to him. Now, doesn't that sound good? That you can be closer to Jesus by suffering like Jesus suffered and just feel a little bit of his pain and understanding? That way you can have more compassion for those who are on earth, so forth and so on. So purgatory now has become a de delightful place to be. And uh, I've talked with Roman Catholics who say, I'm looking forward to it. In fact, I witnessed to one Roman Catholic and I said, look, Jesus Christ bought an eternal redemption. Full payment, full pardon. It all rests on him. He took all of the sins of his own onto himself. You'll not be judged anymore as far as the East is from the West. You are free from your sins. The answer given to me by that Roman Catholic was, that's not fair. <laughs> I want to go to purgatory. I want to suffer. I know what I have done in my life. You don't know, mister. You don't know me. I know what I have done in my life. I know the sins that I have committed. I know how deep and dark and ugly they are. And it will be a privilege to suffer for my God and my Savior. Hence, happily, she wants to go to purgatory. 
wouldn't miss it for the world. And thus is the convincing spin of the spin doctors of the Romanist system that they have been able to attract people to purgatory. It used to be that Romanists feared purgatory. It drove them to mass. It drove them to buy indulgences. It drove them to put their life savings in the church treasury that they might buy time out of purgatory, which incidentally was the thing that so incensed Martin Luther. Many people think that an egg fell on Luther's head and he woke up one day and said, justification by faith alone. That's not true. He was incensed that people were buying their way out of purgatory through the purchase of indulgences. He said, we don't sell time off from purgatory. At that time, he was fully convinced there was a purgatory, fully convinced that he was going there. He was incensed and enraged that anybody thought they could sell time off when he wrote his theses and tacked them to the church castle door at Wittenberg. Where do the Romanists go for purgatory? Well, nobody knows where it is, so they don't know where they go. That's not what I meant. I meant where in scripture do they go? They go nowhere in scripture. There's not one place that they appeal to in scripture for the doctrine of purgatory. Some might go to 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that you will be tested as by fire. And if there are any works that are not works built on the proper foundation, they will be burned. But all you have to do is point out that the works are burned there, not the man. And then Romans left with 2 Maccabees chapter 12, which is part of their canon of the text. It's not part of ours, but it's part of theirs. And so what I normally do is say, you might as well go to 2 Maccabees 12. You're going to end up there anyway. And guess what? 2 Maccabees 12 does not teach purgatory at all. Much to their surprise, the whole story of the fallen soldiers and Judas atoning for the dead has no word about purgatory, no word about suffering. They bring it into the context. The notion is previous to the context, and if we had time, I'd share with you Second Maccabees 12. Well, for all of the above reasons and many, many more, we utterly reject the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic religion. We believe that the Romanist religion lies outside the teachings of the Bible. And as such, it is a spurious gospel condemned by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.